Hi everyone and welcome to the adventures of Mr. Chris. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world and ask why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the Book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that people are worried about the end of the world. This is the second of a two-part extra focusing on disease and pandemics. In the second special episode, we turn to the 1918 influenza outbreak, better known as the Spanish flu, a global pandemic that took place near the end of World War I and killed an estimated 50 million people. We'll look at how the virus spread during wartime and consider how U.S. cities reacted to early public health control measures, including many we're familiar with today, such as social distancing and mandatory mask laws. We'll also look at how government efforts to suppress information about the pandemic played a role in making the outbreak worse, as well as how anti-mask resistance in cities like San Francisco still find echoes today. Stay tuned for part two of this deep dive into pandemic history. If you haven't already listened to it, be sure to check out part one of this two-part special, which looks at the Black Death in the 14th century. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my end-of-the-world class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. So as you'll recall from our discussion last week about the Black Plague in the 14th century, really after that event, no other thing compares historically, at least that we have any records of, to the 1918 influenza epidemic. Um, commonly referred to incorrectly as the Spanish flu. Now, as we'll see, reactions to influenza were complicated by a number of factors, but two that were particularly key were the lack of exposure at that time to this new strain of the influenza virus and the fact that we were in the midst of World War I. Because of that, political leaders, particularly in the United States, but also in other countries, had intentionally made efforts to try to keep public knowledge, particularly about the spread of the epidemic, as under wraps as possible. But at the same time, the suppression of public information about the pandemic was having no effect on the fact that troops moving around, particularly in the early stage in 1918, U.S. troops going over to Europe, were in fact infected and taking influenza with them into the war front being a really good example of how a kind of accidental biological warfare takes place. And it's also important to note that unlike some past and later cases, this influenza targeted young, healthy people the most and struck in a very short period of time. Not only was it seasonal, but often led to secondary complications, pneumonia being perhaps the most pronounced of those, which gave us uh, high death tolls with estimates ranging in the 40 to 50 million range globally. Now we know the outbreak began in early 1918 in the US and scholars most likely suggest it was in southwestern Kansas. Um, there are some estimates by scholars that it could have been in circulation in 1916 or 1917, but um, the general consensus is that it was 1918 and began in Kansas. And this essentially started as an avian strain of the influenza A virus, the H1N1, which most likely was passed then to pigs 
mutated within those pigs and then spread to local communities. And again, this is what we talked about last week with the Black Plague, this zoonotic transfer from animal to human species. So for example, the Wichita Eagle newspaper in Kansas noted in 2018 when they were doing their 100-year retrospective on influenza, it was winter 100 years ago. The virus began on the windswept Kansas prairie where dirt poor farm families struggled to do daily chores, slopping pigs, feeding cattle, horses, and chickens, living in primitive, cramped, uninsulated quarters. It's not known whether it started in the pigs or chickens or birds flying overhead, but it spread to young farmers who drafted for World War I, reported for duty to Fort Riley. So just to give some context here, this is the state of Kansas in the Midwest, and you can see there down where I've got number one, that red star is Haskell County, Kansas, where we have some of the first indications from Dr. Lori Miner that there may have been unusual outbreak of influenza taking place amongst the residents that he noted in January and February of 1918. And then you can see number two there, this sort of long white circle connecting to that red star up there near the town of Manhattan. And this is where Camp Funston and Fort Riley are located. So according to local news reports, we've got soldiers on furlough traveling back and forth between Haskell County and Fort Riley and most likely other areas as well, taking that disease with them. And so on March 4th, you get the first recorded instance at Camp Funston of the outbreak. And within a very short period, um, hundreds of individuals there have become infected. Now, as I noted, although it's often referred to as the Spanish flu, it actually has nothing to do with Spain um, because in World War I, Spain was a neutral country. They were much more freely reporting what was going on and were not suppressing news about the outbreak. And because King Alphonse of Spain had also come down ill, um, they were giving extra attention to that. And so people started to associate Spain with coverage of the flu and hence why we incorrectly referred to it today as the Spanish flu sometimes. Now young people often died from one of three different ways of the infection from influenza. The acute viral pneumonia being probably the most significant one where you could literally be dead within um, the same day or within a day of catching it. And similarly uh, fatal was the hyperreaction of your body and your immune system that would often lead to lung damage. And similarly you could have mortality within a very short period of time. And then the third form was essentially um, developing pneumonia of one of various strains on top of the influenza, which could cause mortality in a few days or possibly even weeks. So some combination of these three were the culprits for how influenza would kill you, either directly in response to immune reactions or on top of or layered with others such as pneumonia. And you can see there a photo from a U.S. soldier in 1918 who had died from influenza and all of the pockmarking and scarring on his heart, or I'm sorry, on his lung. In case you're wondering, well, I don't know, what is a healthy lung supposed to look like? Um, here's a bit of a comparison between what a normal lung would look like and what someone who had died from influenza would look like. You can see the obvious dramatic differences there. Now we know that the influenza pandemic spread through three major global waves. First wave being in the spring of 1918, and this is when the initial outbreaks were recorded. Deaths were not 
extremely high or significant. In fact, not enough to really start to warrant any kind of widespread precautionary measures or public concern. But the second wave, which came in the fall of 1918 after a lull in the summer, proved to be the most deadly of the waves, um, leading to massive deaths all over the world, in part as it was spread through the course of the war in the summer and early fall. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the third wave in the spring of 1919, which was also significant and had a high mortality rate, not quite as high as the second wave, um, but still certainly quite dramatic. And by the summer of 1919, it appeared like it was starting to slowly burn itself out, although some scholars argue we may have seen a smaller fourth wave that actually emerged um, early in 1920. But those first three waves, the spring and fall of 1918, and then the spring of 1919 are considered sort of the major period for the influenza pandemic globally. And you can really see just how significant these outbreaks were, both in sort of the broader civilian population, as well as within army bases and other areas as you see in the fall um, in particular. So the chart on the left, you can see the influenza pandemic mortalities in the US and Europe starting in the summer of 1918, right before that spike of the second wave comes in there in the fall in September, October. And you can see there, you've got the major cities of London, New York, Paris, and Berlin um, estimated on there. And then on the right there, you can see that both the second and the third waves of influenza as they were mapped um, in the United Kingdom in 1918 and 1919. Now, as I mentioned, uh, scholars believe that the influenza pandemic started at Camp Funston, which was a part of Fort Riley in Kansas, somewhere in that late winter 1917 or early spring 1918 period. And at this point, at least scholars think that Camp Funston was the source, or at least that's the first place we have records of um, being noted. So the camp itself was built in 1917, and over the course of its existence in the World War I period, saw nearly 50,000 recruits that were trained and moving through this facility. So obviously um, a large number of people that could help spread um, this disease vector. Five, at least five distinct waves um, swept through the camp um, in just in March of 1918. And we know between the spring and the fall, as new recruits were coming in, those new recruits provided sort of a perfect breeding ground for um, infection to be spread and circulated. You can see a famous picture there of the Camp Funston flu ward from March of 1918. So they estimate that about 14,000 soldiers were reported infected in that period while the camp was active in World War I, with over 900 deaths by the end of the war. Now, interestingly, Camp Funston also served as a detention camp for conscientious objectors at that same time. And you can see um, some of the temporary housing that was set up here, some of which was also used as quarantine spaces um, during the outbreaks. So what we think essentially happened is that you had in 1918, a number, I think it was around 16 of these um, major army cantonments. And um, these basically served as the training areas for the soldiers getting ready to go over to the European front. And as you can see, if we imagine that Camp Funston there in Kansas was 
one of the likely sources of the emergence of the virus with a large number of bases between National Guard, Army, and other camps, it would have been very easy and very quick to spread to a large number of people, which then, as you can imagine, all of those soldiers on these troop transport ships over to Europe, uh, packed in by the thousands, would have been the perfect breeding ground from those military facilities then moving on to ships and then to the battlefronts there. So you can see, for example, in San Francisco, at the Naval Training Station, one of the makeshift flu clinics, excuse me, that was set up sometime in late 1918 or early 1919. So we know a lot about this because of reports that were produced both by um, soldiers in some of these camps as well as medical professionals. So for example, the division surgeon's report from Camp Funston in 1919 notes that never before in the history of this country, so far as the records show, either in the army or in civil life, had the hospitals been so overwhelmingly crowded. Between September 15th and November 1st, 1918, so remember this is the second wave, 15,170 patients with influenza out of a total population for the military reservation of 63,374 were admitted to hospitals. And of those about 9105 were admitted to the base hospital, which was at Fort Riley. 2,624 patients also developed pneumonia of those 941 died. <clears throat> and so the Surgeon General there notes, <clears throat> excuse me, the mortality for that period of the epidemic at the fort was almost 40%. So this is a brief uh, clip from a larger documentary called We Heard the Bells, which gives us a little bit of cultural and historical context for um, how people were experiencing this pandemic. In bustling cities and remote villages in the United States and around the world, orphaned children cried for their parents in 1918. People of all cultures struggled with the same terrible threat, and within a matter of months, as many as 50 million would be dead. What was that deadly threat? just come from a few years before from Mexico. My two brothers were uh, in one room sick. I was sick in, in the other bedroom with my mother. Mother told me that I thought her black hair was a cat and I was afraid of it with a delirium from the high fever. My father's name is Telesfor Reina. At that time, he was working in Tennessee for a DuPont company. He would always bring up the story about how he got sick while he was in Tennessee and how a lot of people from the village that had gone were brought back sick. In 1918, my mother was like just 11 years old, but she's, she remembers uh, the church bell would ring every day that there's a certain bell a notice for the death. And she said she remembers as a little girl how awful it sounded. 
back in 1918. I was a, between 10 and 12 years old, I would say. And I got the flu, and it was just my mother and I. We were two of my friends. We went to elementary school together, and both of them were stricken with the flu. And I would go out to Bayview Hospital, and they'd put her out on a porch in the cold winter time, and they had blankets, blankets, and a hood on, but she died. Both of them died. My mother was the midwife, and she tended to the people, the uh, delivery of babies. She used to take me with her to go and visit the new mothers, and I loved to go see the new babies. And I cried because at that time she didn't want to take me with her because she was tending to the sick and the dying. One thing that stayed in my mind was the pounding of the nailing of boards together, making, I called them boxes, coffins for the people. An influenza pandemic is the emergence of a very new influenza A virus to which most of the population has not previously been exposed and does not have any immunity, no immune protection. Most people in the world are susceptible. And so what you see is very high numbers of people becoming sick uh, worldwide. My mother and father and my two sisters all had the flu. It was a very sad period. There was like a sadness over the city. I remember them telling me that a young neighbor, they saw him coming home. They watched from the window, he coming from work. And the next afternoon, they saw him carried out. He died. The influenza of 1918 was not only much more lethal than seasonal flu, the death rate was very high among young adults, strong young men and women working to support and care for their families. What was different about the flu that struck in 1918 and 1919? Brevig Mission is northwest of Nome, Alaska on the Bering Sea. The fact that Brevig exists today is remarkable. Since of the 80 residents in 1918, only eight survived the flu pandemic. Over 50 years ago, a medical student with an interest in viruses found his way to the village. So I went out on the grave site and started to dig. And on the end of the second day, I found the first victim. Eventually, I started to try to grow the virus, trying to find an alive influenza virus. Week after week after week after week, I got more and more discouraged. And eventually, I had no more specimens. virus was dead. More than 25 years passed, and new techniques for extracting DNA and RNA inspired a young molecular pathologist to try to identify and describe the virus that caused the 1918 flu pandemic. We were hoping to learn from what we see in 1918 to apply it to the future, that we could understand how pandemics form and why particular flu viruses cause more disease than others. In March of 1997, in science news, there it was. 1918 pandemic virus found. A small sequence had been discovered by Jeffrey Tarnberg. I wrote a letter saying, if you need more specimens, let me know and I will go back to Alaska. 
And I got the permission to go because I photographed with me. I knew where the, where the grave was. I noticed there is some bodies at seven feet upon this skeleton. And then next to the skeleton was a perfectly preserved woman. But I could see the skin and it was of an obese woman. I started to do the postmortem. And here is the in insulation around protecting the lungs from decay. The Eskimos are not obese. There's not that much food around, and they were active and hardworking, particularly in 1918. So find one who was, had extra calories, it was just remarkable. It became absolutely clear that we would be able to sequence the rest of the virus from that material. What we hope are to identify mutations that are so crucial to this process that if a bird virus were to adapt in the future to a human, that they would have to acquire some of the same changes. You could particularly design drugs that might block or bind to that particular change to prevent a bird virus from actually functioning in humans. We know that the new 2009 H1N1 virus is in almost every country of the world already, and it was only first detected in, as a new virus, recognized as a new virus in late April. So in just a matter of months, we've seen uh, every continent in the world and virtually every country affected. In 1918, there wasn't even a realization that the pandemic flu was caused by a micro, by a virus. They had no idea what it was. There were no vaccines at the time, nor were there any treatments directly against the virus. And there wasn't the intensive care capabilities that we now have in hospitals. We are infinitely better prepared now than we were 100 years ago back in the beginning of the 20th century. So I think that's the last kind of points that uh, Dr. Fauci, who many of you will recognize from our current coronavirus pandemic, uh, was not having the medical staff and knowledge at that time was uh, one important factor that has certainly improved since then. But also, as the other doctor there right before noted, you know, it wasn't even until 2009 that this most recent strain of H1N1 started to emerge globally. So, you know, we're barely a decade in after that initial discovery and with this coronavirus being a, the new kind of evolution, which is important to keep in mind when we think about how these historical cycles of bacteria, uh, bacterial infections and viral infections um, come and go and mutate over that course of time. Now, as John Barry, one of the articles we read, who's written extensively about the history of the influenza pandemic in 1918 noted, another problem was how government officials responded, particularly during the second wave in the fall of 1918. As he notes, across the country, public officials were lying. U.S. Surgeon General Rupert Blue said there was no cause for alarm if precautions are observed. New York City's public health director declared other bronchial diseases and not the so-called Spanish influenza caused the illness in the majority of persons who were reported ill with influenza. And the L.A. Times public health chief said if ordinary precautions are observed, there was no cause for alarm. So as Barry notes, people could believe nothing they were being told, and so they feared everything, especially the unknown. And keep in mind, this is also in the middle of wartime, so the unknowns were even more significant at that period. So with the truth buried, morale collapsed. Society itself began to disintegrate. In most disasters, people come together, help each other. But in 1918, without leadership, without the truth, 
trust evaporated. And he goes on to note how the Red Cross and other services were dying literally for more volunteers because so many of the what we would call the frontline healthcare workers of this period <clears throat> were already over in Europe. So as Barry and others have noted, the influence outbreak was made worse because the U.S. government actively suppressed the truth about what was going on, particularly the severity of outbreaks and whether or not, in fact, they were part of this emerging influenza pandemic. And kind of added to both the background context of this, as well as contributing to these problems, were President Wilson's efforts with Congress to pass the Espionage, <clears throat> excuse me, the Espionage Act in 1917, just before the outbreak, and then the Sedition Act in 1918, um, while kind of in the middle of the pandemic, to essentially silence and punish critics of the war. And this included socialists and anarchists and communists, anyone that was considered a threat to democracy, but it also included pacifists, conscientious objectors. So these could be religious figures like Quakers or others who were opposed to um, U.S. involvement in World War I. And at the same time, with those government efforts, you had local media often cooperating with the government to downplay or ignore that growing pandemic. And as you can see there on the right, one of the many ads for the Liberty Bonds that were going on um, in this period of time, one of the four different Liberty Loan <clears throat> drives that the federal government was doing to try to raise money for the war efforts. And you can certainly see this interconnection and in a couple of our articles talked about this between patriotism, religion, and war efforts. So it became very important to essentially do whatever was necessary from the perspective of people like President Wilson and others at the time to not derail the war efforts. The problem with this approach, as Barry and others have noted, is that it actually made the pandemic worse. So prop, probably um, one of the best examples of this that we have is the Liberty Loan Parade that took place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the end of September in 1918. So as we read in the articles, despite many doctors and others in Philadelphia saying, basically, this is a terrible idea, this is gonna make things worse, the lead officials in Philadelphia said, it needs to go forward, we need the parade, we need to keep spirits up, we need to downplay that there are any possible health risks or outbreaks. And you can see from these photos, the large numbers of people far beyond what anything had originally been expected at that time. So you've got the Philadelphia Department of Health and Charities, Dr. William Krusner, essentially telling the public, there's nothing to worry about. Spanish flu is not a threat and the Liberty Loan parade could continue as planned. And the local press, as he and others noted, essentially went along with that, refused to print letters to the editor or other things from local health officials and others um, who were saying that Cruzan was wrong and that this was a bigger issue. And so you can see the headlines there on September 29th in the Philadelphia Inquirer highlighting the parade that had just gone down Broad Street and all of the individuals that showed up for that. So we know that there was a major outbreak of influenza immediately after that parade in Philly. And as I noted, there were way more people in attendance than originally had been um, expected. And you had more than 12,000 people die in Philly in that next um, six month period, 
with at 1.750 deaths in a single day. And you can see in that chart there, I mean, some of our readings talked about comparing Philly and St. Louis and the very different reactions to putting in place uh, social distancing and quarantine measures. And that red circle there on the 28th, marking the moment of exposure to all of those people through the crowd and parade events. And then the difference in Philly and St. Louis in how they reacted and that huge spike in Philadelphia due in part to the downplaying of the seriousness by health officials, but also because of the intermingling of that parade. So by early fall 1918, cities all over the United States were finally beginning to really take this outbreak seriously, um, despite, as we saw, government efforts in some places like Philly to continue to downplay the seriousness. So similar to what we're seeing today with social distancing, many cities were putting various kinds of uh, mandatory public quarantine measures into place, and these ranged sort of the gamut, partial closures, uh, asking different types of businesses to stagger their opening and closing hours, to in some cases, particularly later in the fall, um, complete shutdowns, similar to what we've seen take place today. And also some cities put in place mandatory masks for the public, um, including fines for anyone who refused to wear a mask or was found in public without a mask. And so like we were experiencing today, Everything from schools to churches to theaters to soda fountains to dance halls and pubs were all being closed down in the fall of 1918. And you can see this reflected in the news headlines. So this is October 5th, 1918 in Seattle. Churches, schools, shows closed. Epidemic puts ban on all public assemblies. And as you can see from the various headlines there, the war is still very much capturing uh, the public imagination. And the Liberty Loans at this point, they're in the fourth drive. And you can see the little note there in the bottom left about police ordered to close public places. So various efforts going on. Similar here, October 9th, 1918 from Evanston, Illinois. Same story. Influenza epidemic is shutting down schools, churches, theaters. And the war bond drive is going on. But everyone is being swamped by this expanding pandemic. So this is kind of right in the middle of that second wave as it was spreading across the country. So you can see there on the left, this uh, famous image from the Naval Aircraft Factory in Philly, warning people about the spread um, of the Spanish flu. And in this case, you've got as the sign there notes, 1500 cases in the Navy Yard and three, 30 deaths already reported. And this is interesting part of the kind of view of how public health understood the problem at this time. So you've got the don't spit because spitting may be one of the ways that um, this is being spread. And then also this idea, this uh, emerging idea that will lead to in California and other places, the emphasis on wearing masks, something we're very much seeing today about coughing and sneezing being kind of a primary way the disease is spread, but here again, you see the connection to World War I and the use of um, gas in the battlefront. News all over the country uh, was essentially reporting this same phenomenon of places being shut down, schools, public spaces of all kinds, um, churches, much of what we're seeing today as well. And you can see an example there from San Jose, December um, 1918. And also the Red Cross was playing an important role in this period and was kind of at the forefront of leading many of the public health responses 
um, in local communities. And so here you see one of the good examples of the advertising that would have been common in the newspapers um, or posted in public spaces at that time. And an example here of the early gauze masks that were being used with similar recommendations to um, you know, keep yourself clean out in well-ventilated areas, covering your mouth when you're sneezing or coughing. Now, what's interesting is to see how um, even in this political moment, people are looking back to this period in 1918, as you can see from this clip from a press conference from Ohio, where Governor DeWine is talking about lessons learned from some of these examples and how it's informing policy today. This is a, a very instructive chart. Uh, I talked about what we learned about the past pandemics, what we learned about the 1918 pandemic uh, and the comparison between two cities, uh, St. Louis and in Philadelphia. And what we, what we talked about is that we all want to be St. Louis and not Philadelphia, with all due respect to my friends from Philadelphia. Um, the, the chart shows St. Louis, this is St. Louis here, and how it progressed. Uh, this is Philadelphia and how it progressed. And we talked about the fact that St. Louis took the right measures. They did not hide it. They were very open about it. Uh, Philadelphia went the other way. Um, but what to me is, is, is particularly interesting um, is when you look at first case in St. Louis, October 5th. They started ordering social distancing October 7, two days later. Here, first case in Philadelphia, September 17th. They didn't move until October 3rd. So you've got 16 days here, two days here. And so the, the point is that sometimes when we're asked why are we moving? Why are we doing this now? We still have a relatively large or small number of people uh, who uh, have been confirmed to have uh, the coronavirus. And the answer is, as Dr. Acton has pointed out, this always lags behind. And the deaths are way, way behind. And, and the, the confirmations are, are behind. And so we have consulted uh, every expert that we can find and read everything we can read. Um, and so we're, again, we're relying in the decisions that we make on what we know and the best available scientific data um, that we can get our hands on. So as Dwayne notes there, you know, even today, policymakers are looking back on these historical lessons from 1918 to see how different cities reacted to um, the influenza outbreak and what worked and what didn't in those periods. So just kind of give us a, a bit of a comparative sense here, a few different places. You can see New York and St. Louis. So he talked about St. Louis and Philly in that last example. And you can see here the social distancing measures or various public quarantines that were put into place. Now, what's interesting is if you look, I've got the red arrow there at the bottom, December 1st, 1918. 
you had a much longer period of social distancing measures put in place in New York, whereas in St. Louis, there was a brief period from early October to mid-November, and then things were lifted as people thought things were improving, which was the case in many cities in late fall. But then again, just sort of right as the social distancing measures stop in St. Louis, you see a big uptick again. And then once those measures are able to go back into place, things drop down. So by the time you get to January 5th, 1919, the levels are significantly lower in both places, but without a secondary spike in New York, as you saw in St. Louis. And that'll be a trend that occurred in many cities who let uh, sort of ease their restrictions in late fall of 1918. So I want to look a little bit more closely at um, San Francisco as a bit of a test case since um, it's relevant for us here at Chico in California and also because it's been fairly well documented. So some of the first cases were reported in San Francisco on September 24th, 1918 by um, someone who had returned from Chicago and uh, spread very rapidly throughout the course of October so that by the middle of October the 19th, there was 3,733 reported cases and 70 deaths. So that led the Board of Health on the 18th of October to close all the public amusement parks and schools, uh, prohibit dances, various fraternal meetings and social gatherings, um, except public meetings. And then um, because things continued to get worse and these efforts weren't stopping the spread, on the 24th, the Board of Supervisors put in place a mandatory mask um, ordinance that included the threat of fine or jail time for noncompliance. And you can see the news headline there from the San Francisco Chronicle on October 24th, noting that the board was going to enforce this new mask ordinance and that um, everyone would have to comply. Now, what's interesting is similar to what we're seeing today, um, there was immediate pushback. So, for example, San Francisco Chronicle noted 127 people were arrested for disobeying the mask order on the 27th. So just a few days after it went into effect. Another 50 were arrested the following day and sent to jail and more arrests continued um, in the subsequent days. Initially, people were charged with disturbing the peace and often given a $5 fine and let go. But some of those later led to, as I mentioned, um, jail time and increased such as $10 fines. Now, what's interesting, at least in the San Francisco case, is that these fines, that money went to the Red Cross to help support their operations and buy more masks and things. And so this time, um, the Red Cross in San Francisco was sort of the key source for um, production, distribution, and sale of these gauze masks. So you can see a very interesting uh, note there saying, when the maskless ones found that the police meant business, all manner of excuses were advanced for not wearing masks. Favorite excuse being that the mask had just been removed to permit of smoking. And in extreme cases, you can see from the Spellingham Herald um, story in Washington on the 28th, just one day after these arrests in San Francisco, you had uh, a tussle between a health officer and an individual who refused to wear his mask, leading to uh, armed confrontation where um, an individual was shot by the officer, um, not killed, um, but certainly harmed giving you a sense of how things were beginning to escalate in San Francisco in this period as the outbreak was getting worse and more aggressive measures were being put in place by the state. Now, what's really interesting is the way kind of these two tensions between 
public health and individual liberties are playing out. So on the left here, you can see an ad that was run in the San Francisco Chronicle highlighting all these various um, influential local political leaders or civic leaders or business leaders who are wearing masks. And then on the right, this ad from San Francisco Chronicle for the Red Cross with this quote that I really love that I pulled out at top. Doctors wear them. Those who do not wear them get sick. The man or woman or child who will not wear a mask now is a dangerous slacker. We don't really get that kind of language today from the Red Cross or our public health ads, but it gives you um, a sense of how seriously these issues were being taken um, at this time, particularly in tandem with this push for masks and the wearing of masks. Now, what's really interesting is if we compare San Francisco with Pittsburgh in this time period, we can see precisely how these uh, policies make a difference. So San Francisco had two different mask laws or mask ordinances that went into place. The first one, as I mentioned, on October 24th, 1918, which was rescinded or withdrawn on November 1st as people thought things were improving. And so you can kind of see there were social distancing measures put in place before the mask law in San Francisco, um, but as health officials realized that that wasn't enough, the mask law was put in place. And what you see is thanks to these various social distancing measures and the mask ordinance, a huge drop in that number, sort of percentage of outbreaks in San Francisco. But what happens is in that period of the late fall, so November, December 1918 into January of 1919, you have a huge surge again. And so on January 17th, you have this second mask ordinance that's put into place in response. And then again, you see an immediate drop-off start to happen, but on February 1st, again, due to public pressures, um, that ordinance was rescinded. And we'll talk a little bit more about those details in a second. Similar in Pittsburgh, you have a roughly the same um, period. You have a, They started just a bit earlier with the social distancing measures, but essentially stopped around the same time period. But what you didn't see is kind of a resurgent spike in Pittsburgh the same way as you saw in San Francisco. Now, some of that is due to population differences, um, but some of that also um, scholars have suggested may have to do with um, the impacts of the mask ordinance itself. So by the 31st of October, 1918, you had 20,000 cases of influenza and 1,000 deaths in San Francisco. And at that time, the health officer, William Hassler, felt that things were starting to improve. And so, as I noted, on November 16th, the city began to lift um, restrictions. And then that mask ordinance expired on November 21st. And so, essentially, if you had been in San Francisco at the time, at noon, there were whistles that sounded all over town, kind of marking the end of the ordinance. And people were out in the streets celebrating, tearing their masks off, throwing them away. And you can see this kind of iconic picture here on the right of a family um, just before the whistle blew at noon and then immediately after celebrating the fact that they can take their masks off now. And then just a few days later on the 25th of November, the schools reopened in San Francisco. The problem, um, as we saw in that chart previously, is that a new surge follows immediately after these restrictions are lifted. And by the time we're into beginning of January, for example, January 10th, that single day, 600 new cases alone were reported pushing the city to put these masks um, plans or ordinances back into place. So you get that second mask ordinance, January 17th, trying to help um, suppress the surge that have been happening 
um, between December and January after earlier efforts to open the city back up proved to be um, dangerous in terms of spreading the virus. Now, what was interesting is as the second push was made to have the public wear masks again and make them mandatory, you get significant backlash in public opposition. Um, most famously in the form of what was known as the Anti-Mask League. So you had public officials, businessmen, civic leaders, religious leaders, ordinary citizens um, coming together to form this Anti-Mask League of San Francisco. On the 25th of January, 1919, there was a huge rally in Dreamland Rink, uh, like a roller rink, where they demanded the mask ordinance be overturned. Uh, reports estimate that as many as 45 people 4,500 people may have been in attendance and with, from what we can tell, essentially without masks, protesting the mask ordinance. And you can see the headline there from the LA Herald, January 21st, just a few days before this big public meeting in San Francisco, um, talking about why people are opposed to doing this. And you see both in Pasadena, additional rests taking place there for people who were in public without um, wearing their masks. And so, the Chronicle noted that Christian scientists or Scientologists, as we call them today, objected, arguing that it was, quote, subversive of personal liberty and constitutional rights. And civil libertarians argued that if health officials could force them to wear masks, then it could force them to inoculate or any experiment or indignity. Now, it may not be clear from the context here, but that reference to inoculation, um, this is, remember, part of the period where we're seeing an increasing use of vaccinations for um, polio, smallpox, various diseases that were still killing a large number of people. So we see kind of the beginning of a growing public movement to try to develop inoculations and treatments for some of these diseases and also kind of pushback. So this is sort of the early anti-vax movement um, in a historical context here. You're seeing references to from those comments. So following that big public meeting in the Dreamland rink, a petition was delivered by the Anti-Mask League on the 27th of January asking that the lobby revoked. Um, and this took place at a board of supervisors meeting on January 27th, where the petition was delivered. So you've got one of the supporters from the anti-mask leagues arguing that masks are, quote, an infringement of our personal liberty. And it was not in keeping with the spirit of a truly democratic people to compel people to wear the masks who do not believe in its efficacy, but rather that it is a menace to their health. And mayor at the time, James Rolfe, who was also in attendance, um, had a very, uh, let's say, crisp response to these claims that the mask ordinance was anti-democratic. So he says, democracy, who is there here with whether for or against the mask that are not for democracy? We are all for democracy. And we all want to get rid of the mask when it's considered safe to do so. We should give our minds to serious matters instead of fighting the little inconveniences occasioned by the wearing of a mask for the protection of the general public. And he goes on to talk about how we should be more worried about how do we take care of the soldiers and troops that will be returning home. But due to this public pressure and backlash in San Francisco, the mask law was rescinded uh, just a few days later on February 1st, 1919, ostensibly because the health officials there thought the rates had begun to decline enough that it was warranted. So we know now in hindsight that San Francisco ended up being one of the hardest hit cities in the United States by the end of the 1919 pandemic. 
And many scholars suggested that the combination of short quarantine periods and that removal of the mandatory mass provisions between the first and the second ordinances um, led to that increased spike in December and January 1918. San Francisco overall, their death rate from influenza and pneumonia together was quite serious. They had registering at about 673 deaths per 100,000 people. So to give you a sense at that time in 1918, about half a million people were living in San Francisco. So in total, San Francisco had about 45,000 recorded cases of influenza and over 3,000 deaths in that period from 1918 to 1920. Now, it's very interesting to think about historical analogs and lessons here because the sort of anti-mask league in San Francisco is something that's playing out today, but on a much bigger scale um, and in a much broader context in terms of us being aware, not only of what's happening, but of the public engaging with um, their opinions and reactions to this through social media. So you can see a screenshot here from a Fox News story uh, reporting on these emerging rallies and protests to reopen the economy. In this case, they're looking at events between April 18th and May 2nd. Now, what's interesting is if you look, most of the states marked here in red are also states we'll see um, in another video clip here in a little bit where cases continue to be on the rise. So we had the zombie apocalypse. I'm sorry, this is a coronavirus protest uh, at the Ohio State House on April 13th of 2020, demanding that Governor DeWine um, repeal stay at home and work closure rules. Just in the past week or two, we've seen um, increasing number and scale of protests. Michigan in the north, uh, sort of in the upper left there, California in the upper right, the proverbial let them surfboard, um, I guess needs to be in the shop, as well as an interesting association on the sign there above the surfboard saying that Xi Jinping is equal to Newsom. So comparing the leader of China with the uh, governor of California. And there in the bottom left in Providence, Rhode Island, you've got emphasis about church and uh, necessity of reopening churches. And then there on the bottom right, you've got protests in Wisconsin and Madison at the Capitol, all um, kind of raising the same idea of the various restrictions are influencing and limiting public rights. So I've got two clips here to kind of help us think about the kind of both the contemporary context and the way we're seeing echoes today of some of these ideas from 1918-1919. These protesters were not interested in social distancing. As activists held their rally outside the state capitol building here, many are openly dismissive of the science and increasingly seething at the economic cost that they are paying. This arbitrary and unconstitutional overreach has destroyed my career. I had a good paying career, paying my bills, earning good money. Now I'm subject to trying to find a job for $20 an hour because I will not be able to get my job back. The crowd here was not just angry, there was also a patriotic fervor and many who feel that staying at home is somehow un-American. Diane Ventura has seen her business put in peril, and she wants Americans to defy the official guidelines. My biggest fear right now is how quick American patriots crumbled and hid in their homes because their government told them that they should. 
We can't hide in our homes and not produce for our families and for future generations because of a virus that may kill us. So what do I say to the science? I say I don't believe your science because I believe my God. One state representative and a registered nurse gently rebuked the protesters. So many of you don't have face masks and are standing shoulder to shoulder. Her comments were drowned out by jeers. Many here see the projections by scientists as wildly exaggerated. Healthy people aren't dying. We're just getting over it like the flu. Do you see this like the flu? I see it like the flu. That's exactly what it is. It's a different type of flu. So what are you saying to the scientists and those who encourage you to keep apart and wear a mask? Uh, they're fear mongers because they don't know. I mean, people might say, look, they're the experts. But they're not, though, because their numbers have been lies. One force has amplified these protests, namely the president himself, who is arguing that the American economy must open as rapidly as possible. It's an extraordinary fact that he is siding with these anti-lockdown activists and not with his own scientific advisors. These protesters are a minority of Americans, but they are a potent coalition of gun rights activists and those fearful of the economic carnage unfolding. As the lockdown continues, these are voices of protest that will only grow in number. Robert Moore, News at 10, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So it may not have been clear there at the end, but there, again, you're getting uh, religious songs there from those folks on the steps. So you're seeing, again, this interconnection between uh, religious arguments, patriotic arguments, and uh, a theme that we'll see importantly play out again in 1918. So this is the second clip kind of looking at another side of the story today in contemporary context. Good evening, and we have made it through another week together here, another trying week in this country for so many, for the families who have lost loved ones battling this virus, who are still battling the virus, and for the families across this country struggling to make ends meet, to put food on the table, the workers who want to get back to work, all of it a real test, and all of it leading to growing protests over how to do this and the timing. Some of those protests very heated, some demonstrators armed, and the president tonight defending some of those protesters. The death toll growing in the U.S., more than 64,000 lives lost, nearly 10,000 more just since Monday. 18 states tonight still seeing the number of cases rise. Here in New York, the last patients leaving the Javits Center, but the beds and equipment will stay there as a precaution with authorities bracing for a second wave this fall and schools now closed in New York for the rest of the year. The Massachusetts governor tonight ordering people to wear face coverings in public after the state saw its highest one-day death toll this week. And the images from Texas tonight, restaurants and stores are opening up even as that state reported its highest death toll yet. These are the difficult decisions playing out in so many states. And late today, more protests. This one right here in Huntington Beach, California. People frustrated with life on hold. And all of this as late today, the FDA fast-tracked its approval of remdesivir, the first treatment to show promise. So we will get to it all here on a Friday night. And ABC's Whit Johnson leads us off. These are the images that have now been seen across the country. Angry protesters, some of them armed, spilling into the Capitol in Michigan, demanding the country reopen. Today, President Trump tweeting his support for demonstrators, saying the governor of Michigan should give a little and put out the fire. These are very good people, but they are angry. 
They want their lives back again safely. Today, the governor saying she understands people are feeling restless and want to get back to work, but says she found some of the images she saw disturbing. Swastikas and Confederate flags, nooses and automatic rifles do not represent who we are as Michiganders. A flashpoint in this debate over how and when to reopen the country, from Chicago to Indianapolis to California. In Huntington Beach, hundreds of protesters swarming the coast, officers managing crowds on horseback just 24 hours after California's governor ordered the closure of all beaches in Orange County. But as governors weigh the risks, the Ramirez family in California warning about the dangers of the disease. I can't stress it enough that people take this serious. Dad Guillermo dying from COVID-19. 11 other family members getting sick, except for daughter Alexia, who couldn't even get close to her mother to comfort her. She just sat down and was crying and said, that's it, your dad's gone. Your dad is gone. And I couldn't even hug her. I just had to watch her cry. Nationwide, at least 36 states now easing some restrictions by the end of next week. But cases of the virus still rising in at least 18 states. In Texas today, restaurants filling up with customers in Houston. And shopping malls opening, too, at 25% capacity, just a day after the state saw its deadliest day. In Oklahoma, crowds flocking to malls, some people not wearing face masks. But tonight, a lockdown in Gallup, New Mexico, after a spike in cases, one of the highest infection rates in the country. This motel converted into a respiratory clinic to treat COVID patients. In Michigan, a warning from a doctor on the front lines. In rural parts of this country, there is no way that we are near a peak. The fact that people think because numbers are low that are reported that we are in the clear, that it's not coming, that is absolutely ridiculous. As New York State descends from its peak, still around 1,000 new cases per day. It's a lot better than where we were, for sure. But 1,000 new cases every day is still a very high infection rate. It's still a burden on the hospital system. Doctors still battling the virus around the clock at Mount Sinai Morningside, treating patients like Warner Vega. Kind of gasping for air, not able to take deep breaths, and just chest pain every time I did breathe or move. The 33-year-old father suffering a blood clot. So you had what's called a pulmonary embolism a big blood clot that went to the lungs. And we're seeing that even in some healthy young people who have COVID. So you're a pretty tough guy to get through all of that. And a symbol of sacrifice, 66-year-old Paul Carey, a paramedic from Colorado who raced to New York to volunteer, died from coronavirus. So many people came to help, but Paul gave his life for us. Tonight, the FDA fast-tracking the first potential treatment against coronavirus for emergency use. Remdesivir, after early trial results, showed it could cut the disease's course from 15 to 11 days. Tonight, that wet market in Wuhan back in the spotlight as the head of the European Union joins calls for a probe into the origin of the virus. Just yesterday, President Trump suggested he's seen evidence to support a theory being pushed by some conservative outlets that the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan. Today, Trump responding to questions about those claims. We'll be talking to you about it at a later date when we really know some good hard facts. But I've seen probably every version of most of the things you've heard and some of the things you haven't heard.
Yesterday, the U.S. intelligence community acknowledging it's investigating whether the virus was the result of an accident at a lab in Wuhan, but agreeing with scientific consensus that the COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified. While here in New York, another milestone. Mount Sinai's very first COVID patient finally discharged after 54 days in the hospital. Yeah, that was just incredible. 54 days. That was great news. Whit Johnson back with us tonight. And Whit, there's also that new report this evening warning that Americans, that the U.S. should be prepared to deal with this pandemic for up to two years. That obviously got our attention. It's just one study, but it does urge caution and says, in essence, Americans should be ready for a possible second wave and other spikes along the way. And David, those researchers say that the spikes could be even worse in the future than what we're experiencing right now. But in the meantime, just wanted to mention what you referenced earlier here at the Javits Center, that emotional send-off for the final remaining patients here. This, of course, was converted into a military field hospital. The facility closing its doors today, but there is concern about that possible second wave. So the FEMA equipment and supplies will remain here just in case. David, and of course, we applaud all of those workers who came to New York to help with Johnson. Thank you. So just to kind of a note there, the point that they made at the very end there is quite important for us. So the second wave of the pandemic in the fall of 1918 um, was the worst globally. So one of the things that, uh, as they noted in the one study, some doctors are worried about is could the resurgence of coronavirus in the fall 2020 actually be far worse and more deadly. Obviously, there's no way to know yet, um, but it's certainly a worrying possibility that we have a historical precedent for. So as we saw in some of these protests earlier, um, religious communities are certainly heavily involved in all of these conversations and discussions and reactions. So I want to look a little bit at some of the religious reactions. So we saw that churches were closed in many cities, not all, but in many cases. And for a period, at least in some of the areas of the country, you have uh, indoor church services being disallowed. But before public parks, for example, were closed, many churches continued to hold open air services outside and either on church uh, you know, yards if they had enough space or in public um, parks. And so we read a brief clip of an excerpt from the Pastors Federation and um, other religious responses in Washington, D.C. So we saw here from um, excerpt from their letter of the Pastors Federation in D.C. saying, uh, we'll go along with this new order to close the churches and we understand um, the value of it. So we, the Pastors Federation and Special Assembly, do place ourselves on record as cheerfully complying with the request of the commissioners, which we understand applies to all churches alike. We further recommend that our people shall conduct their own homes some form of religious worship, remembering and prayer, especially the sick, our allied nations at war, and the present canvas for the fourth liberal loan. So again, here you see this interesting intersection of patriotism and religion. In this case, the advertising by churches of the liberty loan drives that were going on at this time to raise funds for the war effort. Now, as these public closures continued, uh, many religious communities and others, as we saw with, for example, the Anti-Mask League in San Francisco, began to really kind of start to push back on these restrictions, often arguing that they were uh, a violation of their rights. So, for example, um, 
just a few weeks after the churches are closed down in Washington, D.C., you get um, individuals like Randolph McKim, who sent in this op-ed to the Evening Star newspaper in D.C., arguing that the churches should be open. So he says in part in his editorial, how, hence, however, we may respect the motives and good intentions of our authorities in ordering the closing of our churches, we are at liberty to challenge the wisdom of that order and to affirm, as we do, that it is an outrage upon the religious convictions of the great body of our citizens. When a committee of the Pastors Federation waited upon the commissioners to remonstrate against this order, so he's referencing that um, earlier letter that just talked about where the Pastors Federation agreed to comply um, with this order. So when that committee um, was waiting for something to happen, we found that the ethical and spiritual aspect of the question seemed to be wholly ignored. The whole matter was put on materialistic grounds. Prayer was doubtless a good thing, but it could not stop a bullet or kill an influenza germ. The importance of giving our citizens the comfort and inspiration of the services of the church in this time of anxiety and trouble carried no weight. And so you see um, a really fascinating tension that we're seeing re-emerging today with the coronavirus, which is what is the role of the church or religious communities more broadly in helping people cope with health issues with a global pandemic like 1918 influenza, 2020 coronavirus, and our government officials and others ignoring essentially these religious or spiritual dimensions. So this is a good example of the same ideas playing out today in 2020. They don't want us to do this, but just turn around and greet two or three people, tell them, you love him, Jesus loves him. Now, interestingly, Amen. Rodney Howard Brown was one of the evangelists Listen, that was arrested for holding these gatherings. The if you cannot be safe in church, you're in serious trouble. Serious trouble. We are not stopping anything. I, I got news for you. This church will never close. The only time the church is closed is when the rapture is taking place. This Bible school is open because we're raising up revivalists, not pansies. People said to me, are you, are you shutting down church? I said, when they shut down Walmart, Costco, when they shut all the hospitals down, then we might talk about it. But, you know, church is a place that's supposed to be open to meet the needs of people. Are you with me? Of course, this poll tells us nothing about uh, religious individuals, just so Democrats far, and Republicans. 149,000 people got infected, and there's been 5,600 deaths out of seven and a half billion people. Of course not. 
So welcome to the house of God, the atmosphere, everything in this house is the presence, the power of God. And in the presence of God, no virus can stand. Fear cripples you. I can't go to church today. Why? Because I think the apostle is going to have the virus. Obama honored the enemies of Israel. Trump honors Israel. And it's a massive difference. And because of that, I predict America will be minimally affected by coronavirus. And because of the administration that stands in this land who honor me, who honor the covenants of your forefathers and of the Constitution, and because they have aligned themselves with Israel, and because they have sided on the right side of life, life in the womb, life given outside of the womb, therefore I give life to this nation and I give mercy. Do not fear. This virus is the Spirit of God. I don't know if the apostles went around and air high-fived people and elbowed people. So, as you can see from some of those examples, the tensions about religious freedoms and liberties and the power of prayer, let's say more broadly, um, to protect people from the pandemics are similar today as they were um, in that same period. They may be more visible today thanks to social media and the internet, um, but they were certainly there in the earlier period as well, as we saw from examples in newspapers of that time. Now, we also read this um, sort of statement that one of the Presbyterian ministers, Francis Grimke, um, had written on November 3rd, 1918, as Washington, D.C. and many other cities were beginning to ease their um, restrictions in the fall. Of... So he said, we know now, perhaps as we have never known before, the meaning of the terms pestilence, plague, epidemic, since we have been passing through this terrible scourge of Spanish influenza, which with its enormous death rate and its consequent wretchedness and misery, every part of the land has felt its deadly touch. Over the whole land, it has thrown a gloom. And in his remarks, he highlights a number of issues sort of as he's reflecting on his experiences in the pandemic. And a few of those he notes are that he suggests people should accept the pandemic and our sort of, or your personal fate as being something divinely planned. So. Either you were meant to die or you weren't, and there was no reason essentially to worry about it. The second one he highlights, which uh, we don't see in a lot of the other documents from this period, is the importance of racial justice. So he makes a very strong uh, statement against racism, and particularly this belief among whites that somehow they're not only racially superior, um, but also that this confers some kind of divine benefit on them. And he says very bluntly, um, white folks, this has been a wake-up call. You're dying as much as anyone else. The pandemic doesn't care the color of your skin and highlights the importance of that 
as something that we should take out of as a lesson from the influenza pandemic. And then finally, he argues that the pandemic itself um, gave believers the chance to renew their faith and that the challenges and trials and tribulations were a way for people to gauge how strongly they were connected with their religious communities. So for example, he says, there's only one other thought that has come to me in connection with this epidemic. It is the blessedness of religion, of the sense of security, which a true living working faith in the Lord Jesus Christ gives one in the midst of life's perils. While the plague was raging, while thousands were dying, what a comfort it was to feel that we were in the hands of a loving father who was looking out for us had given us the great assurance that all things should work together for our good. And therefore that come what would, whether we were smitten with the epidemic or not, or whether being smitten we survived or perished, we knew it would be well with us, that there was no reason to be alarmed. Even if death came, we knew it was all right. So very much a reassurance that even if it felt like the world was coming to an end and you contracted influenza, you could still take console or feel that your faith would help see you through it, whether that meant in this life or in the next. And we saw, you know, a, a broad range of religious reactions in this period to the outbreak. So you can see an example here, also in San Francisco from 1918, of a large outdoor service taking place at the Cathedral of St. Mary of the Assumption. Now, perhaps the most interestingly in terms of religious figures in this period was the famous um, old-time religion revivalist Billy Sunday, who traveled all over the United States for a long period of time in the early 1900s, and was known for his flashy style of revival preaching, um, as well as his general sort of character. You can see here uh, drawing from one of his um, sermons in these temporary tabernacles that were set up around the country as he traveled. This one a few years before the pandemic started in Philadelphia in 1915. And then some other examples of him at revivals. You can see on the right, one of these pop-up tabernacles from January of 1908. And then one on the left in what looks to be possibly an auditorium or a public hall of some kind. And don't have a date on that, but I would guess early uh, teens. Now, Billy Sunday, as I mentioned, not only was he a well-known revivalist, but actively traveled and preached throughout this whole period. So we know from records that uh, he held 70 revival meetings in Providence, Rhode Island in the period from September 21st to November 17th, 1918. So kind of at the height of the second pandemic. Uh, because things were increasingly getting worse in Rhode Island, Providence closed most public spaces on October 5th, similar to as many other cities were doing. Um, but the mayor allowed Sunday to continue to hold Sunday services and held three Sunday services that uh, shortly after the public uh, closures went into effect. And there were reports of people there at the time of people falling ill and fainting during the services. So we know that there was certainly a lot of viral spread going on at these big events, particularly considering they tended to uh, attract tens of thousands of people in these relatively cramped areas. So as Sunday uh, responded in terms of why he was continuing to do what he was doing, it's up to us to hope and pray, Sunday told the audience. 
We are always willing to help anything that is for the public good and do it cheerfully. There is nothing drastic in the alderman's order and is issued in an attempt to stamp out this epidemic. So Sunday is essentially noting that, okay, Providence says we can't keep holding these meetings anymore. Um, and we're going to go along uh, with what they say. But his choice uh, in response was to leave Providence, um, pack everything up, and then head down to Boston, where he then spoke to over 40,000 troops who were at the time stationed at Fort Devon um, in preparation for heading over to Europe. So this is a brief clip of him um, speaking to troops. There's no um, details on whether or not this was Fort Devon, but you can imagine a similar scenario of Sunday preaching um, to these large crowds of soldiers. And unfortunately, there's no audio in this clip, um, but you can tell a certain uh, few points here that whatever he's saying is uh, causing folks in the crowd to laugh somewhat hysterically at times, it appears. And you can see kind of here his trademark style of flamboyant uh, preaching and jumping around uh, on the stage. But you can imagine this is a perfect area for influenza to be spread. All of these people all packed together and then imagine many of these getting on troop transport ships to then go over to Europe. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to see uh, there's very little footage that still exists of Billy Sunday actually preaching, but this is an interesting little clip from the same British news agency that gives us a sense of what it might have been like to be in a crowd and hear him preaching. Civilization and society rests on morals. Morals rest on religion. Religion rests on the Bible and faith in God and in Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't condemn any man because of his wealth. The Bible says the man that don't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. According to our standard of gold and silver, Abraham was worth a billion and a half of dollars. David was worth three billion. Solomon was worth five billion. Solomon could have hired Andrew Carnegie for a butler, J. Pierpont Morgan to cut his lawn, and Andrew Mellon for a chauffeur, and John D. to black his boots. America needs a tidal wave of the old-time religion. America needs to be taken down to God's bathhouse and the hose turned on her. And the time isn't far distant when the wheels of God's judgment are going to go sweeping through this old God-hating world. And I want to take a pledge in this audience to join me in a pledge that you will never rest until this old God-hating, Christ-hating, whiskey-soaked, Sabbath-breaking, blaspheming, infidel, bootlegging old world is bound to the cross of Jesus Christ by the golden chains of love. So a good example of what his uh, sermons might have been like. And he, as you get a, a bit there at the very end, I was a strong advocate for the temperance movement and uh, trying to get alcohol banned in the United States as was temporarily um, done. So church leaders like Sunday and others saw part of their religious duty as also being one to promote patriotism and support for the war. We saw this in the various examples from the church bulletins and other records encouraging people to buy liberty bonds and this association between patriotism and uh, sort of religious uh, fervor. And in Sunday and others' comments, both then and now, we also see sort of the role of misinformation and particularly in the case of wartime, sort of the demonization um, of enemies, particularly 
in the early context of World War One, um, Spain and Germany. Now we're seeing that particularly in relationship to China. So, for example, Sunday says, we can meet here tonight and pray down an epidemic just as well as we can pray down a German victory. The whole thing is a part of their propaganda. It started over there in Spain, where they scattered germs around. And that's why you ought to dig down all the deeper and buy more Liberty Bonds. If they can do this to us 3,000 miles away, think of what the bunch would do if they were walking our streets. There's nothing short of hell that they haven't stopped to do since the war began. Darn their hides. So again, you see this misinformation that uh, the virus spread and began in Spain, likely by German spreading um, virus around. And you can see on the right there, one of these wartime advertisements, um, beat back the Hun with Liberty Bond. So here you get both the misinformation of Spain or Germany being the source of this pandemic and the response being to buy Liberty Bonds and to put your trust in prayer to be able to beat the epidemic, and in fact, the Germans more broadly. And so you see these same kind of religious and patriotic ideas circulating today in the protests that we watched some clips from. Um, so looking kind of at the broad picture of this period of all the various diseases that were going around, really only measles compared in terms of its impact on the public, but nowhere near what we saw in that spike between 1918 and 1920 when influenza was spreading um, all over the United States. And as you can see from this chart, if we look from 1900 to 1963, there's really been nothing ever comparing to what we saw during that period. And not just the United States, certainly because of World War I and the fact that this was a new strain, the entire world was um, significantly affected, as you can see here from this chart on the left. Huge um, numbers of people died all over the world. And in fact, parts of um, South and East Asia were hit harder than anywhere else. Estimates are that as many as 17 million people died in India, over a million and a half in Indonesia. And if you look from some of the recent research that's been done, in that 1918 to 1920 period, some of the major kind of continental blocks, they estimate that about 2.4 million people died across Africa, one and a half million across the Americas, 26 to 36 million in Asia. So by far the biggest um, brunt of people that died there in part because of the lack of healthcare and medicine, but also just because of such large population numbers. Europe, 2.3 million, and Oceania, about 85,000. So I think there's there's probably a whole handful of lessons that we can take from this, but I think four that are important to highlight here. The first is that the pandemic response efforts, if they're going to be effective, the government has to be clear. They need to provide timely and accurate information to the public, because without that, as we saw earlier, and in some ways also today, it becomes very easy for the public to be either misinformed or uninformed about what's happening and what they should be doing in response. Second is that public quarantine and various social distancing measures work. The science is definitive. It was then and it is still today. And we can make a significant difference as we saw in some of the historical examples if we contain viral outbreaks but only by following those social distancing measures. As soon as we let go of them or ease them up, as we saw, for example, in San Francisco with the 
gap between the first and second mask ordinances, we're very likely to see a resurgence of the spread. So for us, that's perhaps the most important point because we're just at that point where many countries are starting to open up and ease their restrictions. So it's very possible that we're going to see a new spike in outbreaks if history tells us anything about what happens in these periods. Now, the third lesson is that, as we saw in the last lecture with the Black Plague in the 14th century, and now with the 1918 influenza pandemic, these disease outbreaks often go in waves, and it's often not the first outbreak or the first wave that's actually the most deadly. And that's something that should be particularly poignant for us because the fall of 2020 will effectively be the equivalent of the second wave of what we saw with influenza in 1918. So the question is, will we see a reoccurrence of that type of incident at that scale? Or thanks to modern medicine and various distancing practices, and perhaps the nature of this new virus itself, will this play out differently? Um, we'll have to wait and see. And then finally, as we saw in a number of different ways, the tension between government policies, particularly those health policies that are drawing on the latest science and research, and religious arguments about political liberties and the role of religion or prayer in combating the virus often come into conflict. Whether it's masks or public gatherings, whatever it might be, at some point it becomes very difficult to reconcile government recommendations that do not take religious arguments into consideration and religious arguments that prioritize uh, theological claims over, let's say, materialist or secular claims. And we saw that um, even in the Black Plague period with the rise of the flagellants, the flagellant movement, and the way that the Pope at first kind of kept his hands off the situation, but then as they came to become more and more of a political force, was forced to issue bulls to um, outlaw them. So this is a theme that we see reoccurring throughout history, this tension between political or um, governmental authorities and policies in religious liberties and beliefs. So I'll end with this little ditty. I had a little bird and its name was Enza. I opened the window and in flew Enza. Famous childhood rhyme that was made uh, perhaps infamous thanks to the 1918 pandemic. So I'll leave you with a final uh, set of thoughts, which is what pa what parallels um, we've talked about some, but what others do you see between the 1918 influenza pandemic and what's going on now in 2020 with coronavirus? And what lessons do you think we can learn from these earlier experiences, perhaps both the 1918 influenza and the 14th century Black Plague? And are we repeating any of the past mistakes or are we learning from those earlier lessons and applying them today? So it's a good thing to think about. Okay, I hope uh, this has been useful in giving us a little bit of historical perspective to think about what's going on today with our own experiences of global pandemic. Well, thanks for joining me for another episode of The End of the World. That wraps up part two of our two-part special on disease and pandemics. Be sure to check out part one if you're interested in these topics and haven't already listened to it, where we look at Black Death in the 14th century and how it fundamentally changed Europe. As always, you can find more information about the topics and clips discussed here in the show notes below. And thanks for tuning in.